Chapter 15 He that winneth souls is wise. He that is wise winneth souls. Proverbs 11, verse 30. If I should go up and down the streets in this city and ask men and women, Whom do you regard as the wise man? I would get a great variety of answers. I might go into some banks and ask the manager, Whom do you regard as the wise man? He would likely say, I regard the man who succeeds in getting the most money as the wise man. I would regard the man who, by virtue of rare business intelligence and unusual industry, amasses a fortune of first a thousand pounds, then ten thousand pounds, then a hundred thousand pounds, then a million pounds, and then two, three, four, five, or ten million pounds. If I should go into a political office, I would get a different answer. Very likely, the man would reply, I regard the man who studies the economic and political problems of the day until he has mastered them and succeeds in discovering what is best for his country's financial welfare as a wise man. He wins the confidence of his fellow citizens, who elect him to Parliament. He may then be made a cabinet minister and later become prime minister. I regard him as the wise man. If I should go to military men, I would get a different answer. Very likely, the reply would be like this. I regard the man who masters the art of war, who studies the science of tactics and maneuvers, until he knows how to maneuver great forces on the field of battle and lead them to victory. He would first become a captain, then a major, a lieutenant colonel, a colonel, a brigadier general, a major general, a lieutenant general, and finally a field marshal. I regard him as the wise man. If I should go to young people, I would get another answer. They would likely say, I regard the man or woman who gets the most pleasure out of life and finds the most fun by day and the most amusement by night as the wise man. But when I turn away from men with all these conflicting answers and look to God and say, Heavenly Father, whom do you regard as the wise man? There comes thundering down from yonder throne of eternal light this answer. He that is wise winneth souls. Not he that wins money, not he that wins political distinctions and honor and position, not he that wins fame in the field of battle, and not he that wins the most sport and amusement in life, but he that wins the most men and women to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, he is the wise man. In the eyes of God, the wise man is the man who makes soul-winning the business of his life. And my main proposition today is that every follower of Jesus Christ should make the winning of others to Christ the business of his life. I know that some of you say, I don't believe that. I believe that statement is altogether too strong. I am going to give you six unanswerable reasons why soul winning should be the business of life on the part of every follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus commanded it. First, soul winning should be the business of every Christian because Jesus Christ has commanded us to do it. When the Lord Jesus Christ left this earth, he left his marching orders with the church. Matthew chapter 28 verse 19 says, Go ye therefore, 
and make disciples of all the nations. That commandment was not merely for the first twelve disciples. It was also for every follower of Jesus Christ in every age of the church's history. If you consider the book of Acts, you will see that in the early church every Christian considered that the great commission to make disciples, to win souls, was for himself. For example, if you turn to Acts chapter 8, verse 4, you will read these words, They therefore that were scattered abroad went about preaching the word. These that were scattered abroad were not the apostles, but the rank and file, the ordinary everyday members of the church. Some years ago, when I was speaking in the city of Minneapolis, I noticed a young lawyer in the audience. When the meeting was over, I made my way to him and said, Are you a Christian? Well, sir, he said, I consider myself a Christian. I said, Are you bringing other men to Christ? He said, No, I am not. That is not my business. That's your business. I am not called to do that. I am called to practice law. You are called to preach the gospel. I said, If you are called to be a Christian, you are called to bring other men to Christ. He said, I don't believe that. I said, Look here. Then I opened my Bible to Acts chapter 8, verse 4, and asked him to read. He read, They therefore that were scattered abroad went about preaching the word. Oh, yes, he said, but these were the apostles. I said, Will you be kind enough to read the first verse of the chapter? He read, They were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And they therefore that were scattered abroad went about preaching the word. He had nothing more to say. What could he say? Every man and every woman who believes they are Christians but is not winning others to Christ is disobedient to Jesus Christ. It is serious business in war to be disobedient to your commanding officer. And it is serious business for a Christian to be disobedient to Jesus Christ. Jesus says, Ye are my friends, if ye do the things which I command you. John chapter 15, verse 14. One evening, I was told that a minister's son was to be present in my congregation, and that though he professed to be a Christian, he did not work much at it. I watched for him and selected the right man from the audience. At the close of the service, I hurried to the door by which he would leave, and shook hands with many as they passed outside. When he came to the door, I took his hand and said, Good evening. I am glad to see you. Are you a friend of Jesus? Yes, he replied heartily. I consider myself a friend of Jesus. Jesus says, I replied, Ye are my friends, if ye do the things which I command you. His eyes fell. If those are the conditions, I guess I am not. I put the same question to you. Are you a friend of Jesus? Are you doing whatever He commands you? Are you winning souls as He commands? If I should ask every friend of Jesus to arise, could you conscientiously get up? Soul winning was the business of Jesus. In the second place, soul winning should be the business of every Christian because it was the business of Jesus Christ Himself. 
What is it to be a Christian? To be a Christian is to be a follower of Christ. What is it to be a follower of Christ? To be a follower of Christ is to have the same purpose in life that Jesus Christ had. What was Christ's purpose in life? He himself defines it in Luke chapter 19 verse 10. He says, The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. The Lord Jesus Christ had just one purpose in coming down to this earth. He had just one purpose in leaving the glory of heaven for the shame of earth. There was just one thing he lived for, one thing he suffered for, one thing he died for. That was to save the lost. Is that your purpose? Is that what you live for? Is that the one great ambition of your life? Is that the all-absorbing passion of your life? If it is not, what right do you have to call yourself a Christian? If Christ had one purpose in life and you have an entirely different purpose in life, what right do you have to call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ says in Matthew chapter 4 verse 19, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Are you following Christ? Are you fishing for men? Suppose I had asked at the beginning of this service every follower of Christ to stand up. I think that almost every man and woman in this audience would have stood to their feet. But suppose I now ask every follower of Christ to rise. How many of you could stand up? Personal Fellowship with Jesus Third, soul winning should be the business of every Christian because that is where we enjoy the unspeakable privilege of personal fellowship with Jesus Christ. There is a wonderful promise in this book, one of the most precious promises that it contains, a promise that people constantly quote. I do not wonder that they often quote the promise. What I do wonder is that they quote the promise without reference to the context and the condition. The promise is Matthew chapter 28 verse 20. Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Is there a more precious promise than that between the covers of this book? Ah, but notice the condition. You will find it in the preceding verse, verse 19. Jesus said, Go ye therefore and make disciples of all the nations, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. In other words, Jesus says, You go my way, and I will go yours. You go out with me in fellowship and in work, and I will go out with you in personal fellowship. I want to ask you a question. Have you any right to this promise? You have often quoted it. You have often built upon it. But have you any right to it? Are you going out as far as your influence extends, making disciples and winning souls? Your influence may not extend very far, but as far as your influence extends, are you going out to bring other men or women to Christ? If you are, you have a right to that promise. If you are not, you have no right to that promise. To Enjoy the Fullness of the Holy Spirit Fourth, Soul winning should be the business of every one of us because in that work 
we enjoy the fullness of the Holy Spirit's presence and power. There is no greater blessing than to receive the Holy Spirit, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Oh, the joy of personally receiving and being filled with and baptized with the Holy Spirit! It is heaven come down to earth, but that blessing is given for a specific purpose and can only be acquired for that purpose. That purpose is revealed in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus says, Ye shall receive power when the Holy Spirit is come upon you, and ye shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit, is given to you and me to make us effective in God's service. Many of you pray for the baptism with the Holy Spirit day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, and get nothing. Why? Because you are seeking a blessing that terminates in yourself. You are seeking God's blessing, but not seeking it for God's purpose. When you are ready to go out and tell others about Christ as best you can in God's power, when you are willing to go out and plead with men, women, and children to accept the Lord Jesus Christ, then and only then can you have the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the most charitable results In the fifth place, soul winning should be the business of every one of us because it produces the most benevolent results. No other work is as beneficial. No other work is comparable to the work of bringing other men and women to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. To feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, to house the poor, and to instruct the ignorant is blessed work, and I rejoice in all the work of that kind that is being done. But to clothe the naked, feed the hungry, house the poor, and instruct the ignorant is not to be compared with the glory, honor, and goodness of bringing lost people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. There is no work like it. There is one passage in this book which, if I could repeat that passage to bring out the full meaning and force of three words, I would be willing to leave here without preaching another sermon. If I could quote that passage as it ought to be quoted to make you realize the full, entire meaning and force of three specific words, you would rise en masse and go out at the close of this meeting. You would go up and down the streets for days and weeks and months and years to come, begging men and women to be reconciled to God. You say, What is this passage? It is a very familiar one. You all know it, but you know the words so well, you have never stopped to consider the meaning. It is James chapter 5, verse 20. Let him know that he who converteth a sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death. I would to God that I could burn these words into your hearts today. He who converteth a sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death. The three words to note and consider are save, soul, and death. Let us begin with the middle word, soul shall save a soul from death. 
If I only had power to make you see the value of a soul as God sees it, not merely the value of the soul of the philosopher, the highly educated man, or the prince or the nobleman, if only you could see the value of the soul of the drunkard, the outcast woman, the uneducated man, the ignoramus, or of the little ragged dirty boy or girl upon the street, if only I could make you see and feel the value of one soul as God sees it. What can I put in comparison with that? Gold is nothing in comparison with the value of a soul. Precious stones are nothing. All the gems of earth are as nothing. In 1893, during the World's Fair in Chicago, I could never get close enough to see what the people were looking at in the Tiffany exhibit in the manufacturer's building. Time and again and day after day I went to that place, at all hours of the day and night, but there was always such a crowd there that if I wanted to see what they were looking at, I had to stand on my tiptoes and look over the heads of the crowd in front of me. What were they looking at? Nothing but a cone of purple velvet revolving upon its axis. Towards its apex was a large, beautiful diamond of fabulous value. Day after day, people by the thousands came to see it, and during the course of the World's Fair, literally a million people came to look at that one stone. Well, it was worth looking at, but I have never thought much of that sight since. But it has occurred to me that the soul of one man or woman, the soul of the drunkard on the street, the soul of the vilest abandoned woman, or the soul of the filthiest, most ignorant boy or girl upon the street is of infinitely more value in God's sight than ten thousand diamonds like that. I had two friends in New York City in the same business, and both of them prospered. One of these men started in New York City practically penniless, but he had a rare business ability. He succeeded in amassing a fortune of first a million dollars, then $2 million, then $3 million, and then $4 million. One day he was walking toward his beautiful home up on Fifth Avenue, and as he crossed one of the lower avenues of the city, he was run into by a streetcar and taken home to die. He left $4 million. Yes, he left it all. He did not take a penny of it with him, and I remember how the New York and the Brooklyn papers came out with editorials upon this self-made man, speaking of his remarkable business ability. He had come to New York as a young man, without any money, had gone to work and had amassed a fortune of $4 million, and then died. The other man was in the same business. He too had prospered, though I don't know just how much he accumulated. I think about half a million dollars. Then one day God came into that man's home and took a beautiful daughter, a child only four years old, the idol of that man's heart. A few days after her burial, he was riding in the elevated train toward his home, and as he thought of his little daughter, blinding tears came to his eyes. He held the newspaper in front of his face to hide the tears from the strangers in the train. He kept thinking about his little daughter Florence, and this question came into his heart. Your daughter is dead. What are you doing for other men's daughters? He said, 
I am doing nothing, but I will. The next year, he put $10,000 into the rescue of fallen girls in New York City. The following year, he put $11,000 into the same work. And the year after that, he put himself into the work. He turned his back on his place of business down on Fulton Street, often going to his place of business for only two hours a week and spending 18 or 20 hours a day in the slums of New York City seeking the perishing. Finally, he turned his back on the business altogether, sold it for a profit, and gave his whole time and strength to telling the lost about Jesus Christ. He is nearly 70 years old, the youngest 70-year-old man I know. God has used him to lift thousands from the deepest depths of sin to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now I am going to ask you a question. In light of eternity and that great judgment day to which we are all hurrying, which of these two men made the best use of his time, his talents, and his money? Did the man who devoted his entire energies to saving four million dollars, leaving it all when he died as a pauper, do better than the man who devoted his strength to saving thousands of souls who will meet and welcome him in a glorious eternity? The second word is death. Shall save a soul from death. That word death is one of the worst words in our language. People in our day, poets and theologians, try to paint death in fair colors. There is nothing fair about death. Death is a hideous thing. Death is a horrid thing. Death is an appalling thing, and death is our enemy. Thank God, for the Christian death is a conquered enemy, for Jesus Christ has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. But death itself is an appalling thing. When you go to a man, woman, or child and lead them to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, you have saved a soul from death. Remember, the death of the soul does not mean mere non-existence. Death does not mean annihilation. Death does not mean mere cessation of being. Death does not mean mere non-existence any more than life in the New Testament means mere existence. Life means right existence, holy existence, godlike existence, the ennoblement, glorification, and deification of existence. Death means just the opposite. Death means wrong existence, unholy existence. It means corruption, defilement, degradation, shame, disgrace, ruin, and the despair of existence. When you and I lead a man or woman to Christ, we save a soul from death. Then look at that other word, save. That is one of the great words. You sometimes narrow it down and make it a very small sort of word, but as it is used in the Bible, the word save is one of the most magnificent words. It means not merely to save from, but also to save to, not merely to save from hell, but also to save to glory, holiness, happiness, heaven, and knowledge of God, communion with God, and likeness to God. Suppose it were announced that I would go tell the businessmen in this city this afternoon about a process whereby they could go out through the streets into your country roads, 
stoop down in the mud and dirt, pick up common ordinary stones, and by the mysterious process of the jeweler, transform them into real diamonds of the very first quality. Suppose it had been announced that I would do that today and that the businessmen knew I really had such a process. Do you think there would have been anybody in this meeting this afternoon? There would not have been seats enough to accommodate the crowd of men that would have come. I can tell you that very thing. I can tell you how to go out through the streets and into your country roads, stoop down into the mud and dirt and mire of sin, pick out the common, ordinary, rude stones of lost souls, and by the glorious art of the soul winner, transform them into diamonds worthy of a place in the Savior's eternal diadem. Don't you think that is worthwhile? Is anything else worth as much? Most Abundant Reward And last, soul winning should be the business of every Christian because it brings the most abundant reward. There is another verse which I wish to sink into your heart. It is Daniel chapter 12, verse 3. They that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars for ever and ever. Some people want to shine on earth. It is not worthwhile. The brightest star in any earthly galaxy will soon fade. The brightest star in the financial firmament, the brightest star in the political firmament, or the brightest star in the social firmament, how long will they shine? Only a few years, and then they will go out forever. Three years ago, the brightest star in our political firmament shone with unrivaled splendor. He was a man about whom the world was speaking and beginning to associate his name with the names of America's greatest statesmen, Washington and Lincoln. But one dark night, that star was snuffed out by the crack of the revolver of a half-crazy anarchist. Today, that great statesman is practically forgotten. Almost no one ever speaks about McKinley today. You can look through our papers day after day and never see his name. It is all Roosevelt now. It used to be all McKinley. Ten years from now, it will all be somebody else. It is the same in England. You go through your English papers today. It is all Chamberlain now. Ten years from now, Chamberlain will practically be forgotten. It doesn't pay to shine down here. It does pay to shine up there. They that shine up there shall shine as the stars forever and ever. Most of us could not shine down here if we wanted to, but thank God any of us can shine up there. There is only one way to shine up there, and that is by saving the lost, by bringing them to a saving knowledge of Christ. Before I close, I must tell you a story. This incident is so remarkable that when I first heard it, I thought that it could not possibly be true. Yet the man who told it was of such a character that I felt it must be true. Yet I said, I must find out for myself whether that story is true or not. So I went to the librarian of the university, where the incident was said to have occurred, and I found out that it was true. The story as I tell you today is as I got it from the brother of the main character in the incident, 
The incident is this. About 12 miles from where I live, 12 miles from the city of Chicago, is the suburb of Evanston, where there is a large Methodist university, probably the largest university of the Methodist denomination in America. Years ago, before the college had blossomed into a great university, there were many students, and among them were two young country boys from the state of Iowa. They were strong, vigorous fellows, and one of them was a famous swimmer. Early one morning, word came to the college that down on Lake Michigan off the shore of Evanston there was a wreck. It proved to be the Lady Elgin. The college boys hurried down to the shores of Lake Michigan, along with everybody in town. Far in the distance, they saw the Lady Elgin breaking into pieces. Ed Spencer, this famous swimmer, threw off all his superfluous garments, tied a rope around his waist, threw one end to his comrades on the shore, and dove into Lake Michigan. He swam out to the wreck, grasped one person that was drowning, and gave the sign to be pulled ashore. Again and again and again he swam out and grasped a drowning man or woman and brought them safely to shore, until he had brought a seventh, an eighth, a ninth, and a tenth. Then he was utterly exhausted. They had built a fire of logs upon the sand, so he stood by the fire that cold, bleak morning. He was blue, pinched, trembling, and hardly able to stand. He stood before that fire, trying to get a little warmth into his perishing limbs. As he stood there, he turned and looked at Lake Michigan, and off in the distance, near the Lady Elgin, he saw men and women still struggling in the water. He said, Boys, I am going in again. No, no, Ed, they cried. It is futile to try. You have used up all your strength. You could not save anybody. For you to jump into the lake will simply mean for you to commit suicide. Well, boys, he said, they are drowning, and I will try anyhow. And he started to the shore of the lake. His companions cried, No, no, Ed, no, don't try. He said, I will. And he jumped into Lake Michigan and battled out against the waves. He grabbed a drowning man that was struggling in the water. Again and again and again he went out, until he had brought an eleventh, a twelfth, a thirteenth, a fourteenth, and a fifteenth person safely to shore. Then they pulled him in through the breakers. He could scarcely get to the fire on the beach, and there he stood, trembling before that fire, trying to get a little warmth into his shivering limbs. As they looked at him, it seemed as if the hand of death were already upon him. Then he turned away from the fire again, looked over the lake, and as he looked, far in the distance, he saw a spar rising and falling upon the waves. He looked at it with his keen eye and saw a man's head above the spar. He said, Boys, there's a man trying to save himself. He looked again and saw a woman's head beside the man's. He said, Boys, there's a man trying to save his wife. He watched the spar as it drifted toward the point. He knew that to drift around that point meant certain death. He said, Boys, I am going to help him. No, no, Ed, they cried. You can't help him. Your strength is all gone. He said, I will try anyway. He dove into Lake Michigan and swam out wearily toward the spar. As he reached it, he put his hands on the spar 
summoned all his dying strength and brought that spar around the right end of the point to safety. Then they pulled him in through the breakers, and loving hands lifted him from the beach and carried him to his room at the college. They laid him upon his bed and made a fire in the grate. His brother Will stayed to watch him, for he was becoming delirious. As the day passed, Will Spencer sat by the fire. Suddenly, Will heard a gentle footfall behind him and felt someone touch him on the back. He looked up, and there stood Ed, looking wistfully down into his face. He said, What is it, Ed? He said, Will, did I do my best? Why, Ed, he said, you saved seventeen. He said, I know that, but I was afraid I didn't do my very best. Will, do you think I did my very best? Will took him back to bed and laid him on it. He sat down by his side. As the night passed, Ed went into semi-delirium, and Will sat by the bed, held his hand and tried to calm him. All that he thought about were the men and women that perished that day, for in spite of all his bravery, many went down to a watery grave. Will tried to calm him. Ed, he said, you saved seventeen. He said, I know it, Will, I know it, but oh, if I could have only saved just one more. You and I stand beside a stormy sea. As we look out at this tossing sea of life around us on every side, there are wrecks. Will you and I sit calmly while they are going down, 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 down to a hopeless eternity? Let us plunge in again and again until every last ounce of strength is gone, and when at last, in sheer exhaustion, we fall on the shore in the earnestness of our love for perishing men, let us cry, Oh, if I could only save just one more.